coming up on Life is a Festival. So whereas I, it is instrumental, um, I, thou encounters are non-transactional encounters with the totality of another person. And I think that Burning Man is a place where most encounters, especially after you've done with Build Week, are I, thou. Well, it's, it's a decommodified space. Yes. Yeah, decommodified. So it's, it's, it's you're encountering another person in the timeless. You're encountering another person no longer in Kronos, but in Kairos. And so you see the totality of another being. And there is nourishment from I-thou relationships. And I believe that an I-thou relationship is also like a connection of flow, a group flow with another person that occurs in a realm outside of time. My name is Eamon Armstrong, and this is Life is a Festival. This podcast is a celebration of leaders and thinkers who live their lives with the open-hearted, experimental joy of a festival. Life is a festival, only to the wise. Well, hey there, sir or madam or non-binary human, or animal of some unknown gender. Hi, may I take a little of your time? This is a pretty long podcast. This is like an hour and 45 minutes. Do not expect you to listen to all of it, unless you happen to be a huge fan of Mr. Jason Silva. Jason Silva is a pretty incredible filmmaker and modern philosopher, and he pops these short little shots of awe in people's visual field through Facebook and YouTube. He's been all over the place touching people's hearts and minds in little bursts, one heart and mind at a time. And time is what we're kind of talking about today. It's the through line through this long chat. And he sets it up beautifully with this idea of chronos and kairos, these two Greek concepts of time, chronos, the mechanical time, and kairos, the timelessness of the moment, the time that can stretch forever. And throughout our conversation of time, we talk about Jason's experience becoming a filmmaker and trying to capture time. We talk about flow state and the experience of timelessness in flow state. We talk about psychedelics. And Jason goes on the record on the podcast to talk about the psychedelics he has used. By the way, being on the record doesn't mean you will get a record because apparently you cannot incriminate yourself by talking about substances you have done in your life. That's something that Jason has told me. So... You know, I've been flying pretty free for a while, but I guess I'm safe, and so are you. Finally, at the end, we talk about death, impermanence, and this is the thing that I'd always wanted to talk to Jason about ever since we first met at Burning Man a year ago. Why does Jason want to rage against the dying of the light, as Dylan Thomas so famously wrote? Why is that so important, and why is that not, in fact, itself Raging Against Impermanence, The Cause of Suffering. A big thing about this podcast is Burning Man, because we only, before doing this podcast, had hung out at Burning Man, and we hung out at Burning Man a bunch. 
I'm going to start this podcast with a little clip that um, Jason recorded at Burning Man speaking to some friends of his about impermanence and his relationship to time. And after that short clip, we're going to jump right into a juicy, meaty, full of awe and wonder and adventure episode of the Life is a Festival podcast with none other than Jason Silva. The magic of Burning Man exists primarily because it's temporary. It's mm. ephemeral. It's mm. uh, uh, it's impermanent. Mm. And at the end of these seven days, this whole city disappears. All the art is burnt and it's gone. That's very so interesting th- because you think that the minute something stops being impermanent, we start taking it for granted. Exactly. Things are only holy when they're outside of time and in stasis. And so ephemerality, by definition, is a subjectivity that exists outside of time. If you can enjoy ephemerality without being haunted and depressed, you're actually in the moment. It's when you start thinking, oh, shit, this moment's going to end, that you're not really in the moment anymore. Absolutely. You're anticipating misery, which I'm pretty good at. Yep, totally. <laughs> I'm trying to heal myself of that. But... Does it feel a little different now that we're holding microphones than just before when we were talking? I like the microphone. I find that it it focuses my thinking. Mm, okay. Yeah, I am. Um, I think knowing something is being recorded makes me want to make it count. I think that's always been my relationship with recording anything. I mean, I've been recording things with the camera since 1994 is my first dated video content that I have archived. So. Yeah, I, I have I have anxiety about forgetting things and having these exceptional moments and wanting them to be recorded. But something that's difficult for me in this is like if I record all this stuff, then I gotta sift through it and find mm. what's actually good and turn it into something else. I feel like if you've developed a way of recording yourself on the go that you're getting a finished product that you like sort of out the gate that's kind of the hack for it well absolutely i mean I, and also because i'm very impatient so i always want to have a, a finished product out the gate when i was yeah when i was i guess 12 years old and i was making videos i never put myself on camera i was always directing other people i originally wanted to be a director so i'd cast my brother and uh we used to have um this guy that would come to our house. He was like the gardener in our house in Venezuela. And I would cast him in the movies as well. And I would like direct these like elaborate spoof films. And, um, and I used to edit in my head. So every cut was like editing in sequence in my head. Cause we didn't have any editing equipment back then. And, uh, it was just, it was awesome because it gave me such a sense of control and authorship over a finished product out the gate. And it was, a little bit later, probably when I was 15 or 16 in high school, that I used to host these salons with my friends. And we would uh, kind of sit in a circle and, and we were experimenting with cannabis. And I, I realized very quickly that it evoked these uh, very interesting states of consciousness in which both reverie and uh, this verbosity came out of me. And so my relationship with the camera made a lot of sense back then because I would have these again, these transitory insights, these aha moments that were beautiful, and I wanted to record them in real time. And that's when I kind of fell in love with trying to find ways to capture the timeless, capture what was happening in domains of mind that were more kairos than chronos, as the Greeks would say. What does that mean, more kairos than chronos? So the Greeks, my understanding is that the Greeks had these two ways, or these two um, interpretations of how you could experience time. So time could be experienced in chronos, which is um, kind of consensus time or mechanized cognition. 
It's life by the clock. It's we both agree when it's 5 p.m. It's fetching water and chopping wood, so to speak. Did, did Kronos ate his kids, right? Kronos oh, was I the don't god that. who that I, ate I, Zeus and all of Zeus's brothers and sisters? Well, I'm, I don't know that that uh, that version of the story, but Kronos is the description that they use for mechanized cognition, the default world, fetching water and chopping wood. It's how we operate on a day-to-day basis. But then, Kro- uh, sorry, then Kairos is like poetic time or archetypal time or dream time or ecstatic time. It's the domain essentially outside of time when time dilates and it's more subjective. And I feel like that's when we find the most intense visionary inspiration to begin with. And so for me, you know, getting high in high school for the first time, experiencing altered states of consciousness or different ways of seeing the world um, were these transitory Kairos spaces and recording them was negotiating with what shall not be recorded because you were having these experiences that are essentially ineffable or out of time. I mean, think about it when you're making love to your girlfriend or when you're in an ecstatic party with friends. I mean, we have these out of body, out of time, altered state of consciousness experiences. And then we do our best to try to tell other people what they were like. You know, we write a book, we write a poem, make a painting, but there's this sense of ineffability. And being a person that loves language and trying to tile experiences with language was a compulsion that I always had. And so the desire to record myself when I was in a state of reverie was something that developed in me very early, like at the age of 16. It was like, um, it was kind of like when I was at my most loose and my most free, the part of me that is a control freak was still there and was like, fuck man, this needs to be recorded. You know, like most people when they're stoned out of their brains forget to bring the camera or they certainly like forget to charge it to begin with. And I was always prepared because I knew that there was going to be gold that was going to emerge and I wanted to like archive it and immortalize it. And that was, that's just like, that's like a thing that, it, that, that was, you know, for me, um, a formative experience for my art and my creativity. Is there something tyrannical about that part of you that needs to capture that moment? Like, is there a part of you that feels that by always attempting to capture it, some part of you isn't fully living it? People will say that. They're like, stop trying to capture the moment and just live it. The minute you try to capture it, you're now no longer fully living it. Um, And I don't mean it conceptually in the way of someone else's reflection. I mean in your own being. And I ask it because I often have this experience of, am I really living? Is my foot kind of on the brake a little bit? Am I completely free in a psychedelic experience or a sexual experience or in any kind of boundary pushing experience? If I am aware that I am trying to create the experience by pushing myself harder, am I somehow not fully surrendered and free? I hear what you're saying, and I think that for me, I, I, I'm not comfortable with, I don't feel like an experience counts unless I have some kind of souvenir recorded live during the experience or, or immediately thereafter that, that I can reflect on and archive somewhere in my psyche. Like, I, I'm... I think it's 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 definitely an anxious relationship with transience to begin with. You know, I, I, I am not comfortable with ashes to ashes, dust to dust. I'm not comfortable with everything ending to begin with. But um but having something, you know, having a reflection, having some a piece of content to look back upon is is a kind of a consolation prize in some way. But also that is that is what art is, right? Like I mean when I 
I, I see a movie, and when I, you know, I was talking to you earlier about how much I love Danny Boyle films. I love his films not so much because of the plots and the storylines, but because of these very intense and emotional, almost music video-like sequences that he creates, essentially like assemblages or montages, where you kind of compress an emotional, cathartic experience for the character in like three or four minutes, like set to music and editing, and there's like this visceral intensity. And like inside of those three or four minutes, the whole movie might be made for me. Like, I'm just like, just for those four minutes, the whole price of admission was worth it. That's something that I want to watch again and again and again and relive again and again and again. Like, like intensities and insights and catharsis set to music, set to imagery, edited together for me is like a, like a drug. Like, I want like an IV drip of like aesthetic orgasms, essentially, or musical skin orgasms. You know, when you get this, the, the goosebumps and the hairs of the back of your neck stand up. And I, I think sometimes not just consuming that kind of media, but like, like talking or, or creating or co-participating in, 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 in making something that then can be my own version of that is, 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 is just an aspect of who I am. It's, it's a compulsion that I have, you know, I, I just, I can't, yeah, my, 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 my greatest ecstasies um, need to be, they need to be recorded. They need to be reflected upon in real time. Like I, I need to verbalize it in order to know, to know what I think. And then I need to be able to have something to look at. And maybe there's something meta about that because, you know, there's your experience from the inside and then there's your experience from the outside watching yourself later, you know, and that was something also that was um, another thing that was very, I think, I don't know if healing, but definitely insightful for me um, growing up and, and, and doing all this content where I was like recording myself having all these reflections is that I was, I grew up very self-conscious and also very shy and very in my head and very kind of stiff. You know, I was not the guy that danced at parties. Um, but what would occasionally happen is that certain spaces, certain contexts uh, would evoke these altered states of consciousness, these, these reveries where I was outside myself or, or free of my own inner critic or free of my own self-consciousness. And recording that allowed me to have evidence of someone else, um, you know, who I was when I wasn't there, so to speak. You know, that's what they talk about when you, when you get into a flow state or when you're in a moment of visionary creativity that the inner critic goes quiet and you experience that as liberation. To lose yourself is somehow liberating. To lose yourself is to find yourself, you know? Um, and so for me, those videos were uh, confidence building because they taught me to trust the person that I was when I wasn't there on guard mm. so if you, if you if you psychoanalyze me as somebody who has some kind of like ptsd or is it was hypersensitive and hyper uptight and hyper self-conscious then seeing himself when he wasn't on guard even if those moments were few and far between were enough nourishment for me to feel like wow deep inside of me is a strong person that doesn't need me to be on the lookout all the time and and that became like a very interesting feedback loop, and it's probably responsible for my creative career. Everything I ever did that was impressive, I wasn't really there because when I'm there, I'm always like second guessing, and I'm on guard, and I'm like ruminating. But when I'm not there, I'm like so fucking loose. I'm like dancing. I'm like, wow, who's that guy? Oh, that's me. Oh, okay, remember that, Jason. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wait. We have some really, I'm sorry, really incredible overlap. <laughs> it's a lot. I know. No, just... it's it's a wonderful opener, and and I have a typical opener that I do. Yeah, and this is a good time to do it because okay. if I start pulling threads, sure. I'm gonna just pull threads. Yeah, my here's my typical opener mm -hmm. that I usually ask any of my guests, which is, what would a home run podcast be for you? What would you most like to get out of this, and what would you most like the listeners to get out of this experience? 
Well, I think that when we sit down for a conversation, a podcast, an interview, call it what you will, um, we diff- we automatically have certain kind of go-to answers, you know, like things that we're used to saying when we are probed. Um, but I think what can happen sometimes is is if we allow ourselves in, in conversation to go to our go-to answers, but then like find like new reflections inside of those answers and find like new counterintuitive ways of seeing ourselves through conversation, that's always a win for me. So a win is if I if I end up saying something new, it's a win because we tend to have these, at this point, almost like self-defining or autobiographical answers that are our go-tos. But if I can find something new about myself through this conversation, that's a win for sure. Well, and I think about when we met at Burning yeah, Man yeah. last year. Yeah. And we had a magical bike ride together. Yes. And this is something where I we wish met that... At the, at the man, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we met at the man. And um, I think we might have met briefly in Camp Mystic, but we bumped into each other at the man. Yeah. And we went on a bike ride. We saw that incredible swarm of drones. We saw they were playing Pink Floyd on the wall, on the side of the 747. Oh, um, it, there was a series of epic moments. And yeah. there was no recording device at that time. No, there wasn't. And I actually was... When you were talking about um, how it kind of makes it more real that it's cataloged in that way. I was thinking about that bike ride and I was like, damn, I wish that were the podcast. I've talked about Burning Man for the past 10 years yeah. and I've had few conversations about Burning Man that that, that paralleled that. Yeah. What was interesting because I'd seen your videos before I met you and you were very different than your videos in oh, that conversation. Okay. Interesting. You create such a big, beautiful presentation mm-hmm. of these ideas. Thanks. The soundtracks are... Thanks. Extremely compelling. I was re watching some of the videos before I came yeah. over and because I haven't seen them in a little yeah, while. Yeah, sure. And um, I was like, fuck, this yeah. is like such yeah. an experience. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something I've really enjoyed is get is the intimate conversations that you and I have had mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the space is less filled. Yeah. And where there's room for more doubt, for room sure. for more oh, yeah. fear, room for more longing. For sure. Um, for sure. And I've really grown to really care about you very deeply. Oh, and, thanks, man. Yeah, and because we we kept seeing each other at Burning Man last year. Oh yeah, year. yeah. You were like one of the Playa Angels for me, as as people call it, right? Somebody that a reoccurring trickster character that just manifests in all the right places. And I think that's one of the things that's magical at Burning Man, and we're so lucky to have connected that way. Is um, have you ever heard of the term heterotopia? No, it those, sounds great. Though. Yeah. So I think Eric Davis, our mutual friend, uh first turned me on to the phrase or I read it in one of his pieces. But heterotopia is a place that is both physical and interpsychic. And so you might think of like like a TED conference gathering would be a heterotopia where you have, you know, a hundred or a thousand people who are coming together to this space that's different from their day-to-day life, a physical place and a place of mind mm. that people enter or that is evoked when all these people with either shared interests or intentions step outside of their day-to-day reality, their default world, and enter this interpsychic place. You can almost argue that an audience watching a movie together is a heterotopia. It's an interpsychic, intersubjective space that opens up that everybody is having a common experience. But I think interactive heterotopias would be like conferences and, and at their 
most beautifully expressive, it could be a place like Burning Man. And so when it's when it's a place that's not just physical, but also interpsychic, it means that everything that's happening outside of you is a reflection of what's happening inside of you. Or at least that's how we tend to interpret it. That's why Burning Man is full of these beautiful synchronicities and all these like radical serendipitous encounters. And again, everything is interpreted as a reflection of your inner process, which again, is always happening in the world. You don't see the world as it is, you see the world as you are. But when you go to a place where everybody is is, is like deliberately living out that reality, it starts to, the, the sense of magic and enchantment is radically heightened. And so I felt like you were a, you were a trickster character and you kept appearing. And then I was like, okay, so he has, he has something to teach me. You know, well, and and this year too, it was yeah, it was yeah. interesting because yeah. I have dear friends who I love, yeah. who I intended to see and did not see once. Right. <laughs> I saw you at Burning Man this year, like, like maybe six five times, times yeah. six yeah, times. Totally, um, we did the cold plunge together. That's right. That's right. Um, I I bumped into you out on that beautiful sunset. One year to bump into the same person multiple times yeah. is interesting. That's right. But the second year to do the same thing, I think yeah. that's. Uh, I mean, th- I think that there's a. Um, we both, I think, probably experienced a kind of intellectual charge, you know, as I, I could just tell that you were always somebody that I could like engage with on an ideas level. Mm-hmm. Like we never, you and I have never really done small talk, which is kind of great. You know, so it was just like, oh yeah. I can't imagine that's... you doing small talk though. You, <sighs> I, of all the talk I know you to have done, the groundbreaking podcast would be like the most small talk. Like get Jason yeah. Silva in a room Jesus and just, just doing small talk. Weather. It's kind of cloudy outside. Yeah, kinda... it is kind of cloudy. It's a little cloudy. San Francisco. The weather's nice and crisp. I love San Francisco weather. That's yeah. nice. That's nice small talk. But I like it because when I'm not bothered by the heat or oppressed by the cold, I'm more naturally can be in, in, in the flow of ideas. Hmm. You know, anytime that biology gets in the way of my intellection, <laughs> I get bummed out. So I don't like I don't like being physically tired. I don't like being underrested. I don't like being really hungry. I don't like being really full. I don't like being really hot and I don't like being really cold. <laughs> you, so you, you have such an interesting relationship to being a human. Yeah. Um, because you sort of like love it and then at the same time are a little annoyed by it. Yeah. And especially this impermanence thing, yeah. which I don't want to go so hard on impermanence now because I want to talk about Burning Man first. Sure. But but be warned, I want to talk about death because Great. We got to talk about that. But first of all, Burning mm. Man, um, mm. last year was your first year. So yeah. as a modern philosopher, mm. someone who speaks in psychedelic tones, <laughs> it, I was kind of surprised to see you coming for your first time last year. And yeah. I believe that we spoke a little bit about what took you so long. Yes. You know, it's so funny because I I did major in philosophy in college. Who's and- your favorite philosopher? <laughs> not really the classics you know i like contemporary thinkers man i would say probably ernest becker who wrote denial of death pulitzer prize winning book from 1974 um i think eric davis is a brilliant philosopher you know when i remember in college like reading like ancient greek stuff i was just like ugh, it's it was too dense to be Mm. honest for me and 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 i'm not you know i wouldn't call myself an academic by any means I, I i'd rather call myself an artist because artists take poetic license and can interpret and mash up and assemble and play with language and with ideas in a way that it's not as rigid as scholarly work and um 
the truth is I call myself an artist. And when people call me a philosopher because they think my work is maybe philosophically engaging, I think it's good to remember that the original definition of the word philosophy is just love of wisdom. It doesn't mean PhD scholarship in the work of the ancient Greeks, you know? It just means you love ideas. You love to engage with ideas. And um, and that, I think, is a good definition for me that works. And... Um, so to take I think I think at the end of the day I think I'm an existentialist is what I am. I'm I'm like I'm like enthralled and perturbed by the realities of the human condition and I'm obsessed with understanding to the degree that I can everything. <laughs> I want to understand everything. I want and, to And capture and remember it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, because that's like the just the muscle of not just like learning something temporarily but like cementing it into the wallpaper of my mind and I think that that's why I end up being such a natural quote hoarder and quote whore is because when I come across what feels like truth whether it's, you know, an evocative poetic quote or a reflection that's not just communicating something that makes a lot of sense or that resonates with me but that is communicating it beautifully that just the recitation just the incantation of saying those that phrase out loud also evokes that what that phrase describes and that's one of my relationships with languages language is not just descriptive it's also generative so i can find the words to describe something but in doing so i also evoke something that's a beautiful thing when i think in that way I, you strike me as more of a poet than a philosopher, per yeah, se. Yeah, totally. I you would, know. I would take that. Yeah. You know, I would. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, I'm also, you know, what do I do for a living? I do, I give keynotes around the world on technology and innovation. I mean, that's like really like the the hallmark of my business right now is I get booked by like huge companies, IBM, Intel, Cisco, to talk about tech innovation, futurism, singularity, transhumanism, but all in this language of again innovation. How do we? How do we um, prepare ourselves for massive technological disruption? How do we leverage exponentially emerging technologies to impact the world in a positive way? I mean, this is this is what I speak about. But at the end of the day, I speak about it, I think, from the perspective of, of a poet, right? You know, science describes from the outside, poetry describes from the inside. That's that wonderful Ursula Le Guin quote, right? Like, science explicates, poetry implicates, you know? And, and so for me... I'm not a scholar of technology, you know, I'm not like an engineer, but I can be taught certain trends and I can read certain books, mostly by cognitive philosophers about the relationship between humans and technology or people like Marshall McLuhan, who was also like a philosopher of technology. And then that fucking speaks to me because it speaks to me because it's a language of poetry to describe the human condition. So, so that being said, what took you so long to attend the most poetic technology conference in the world? Okay. Man? So it's something that is um, much more banal than, than, than esoteric. I literally didn't go because I was afraid that I would get no sleep when I was there. And I know that for me, um, after even one night of terrible sleep, my mental faculties and resources and my capacity to emotionally self-regulate gets really fucked. So I feel I, I'm an introvert by nature. And so I just, I find handling even consciousness far more difficult when I am underrested. And I was just terrified. And I'm a very, very, very light sleeper, like earplugs, the whole thing. And I was just terrified that it, that the conditions would be so out of my control there that I would just fucking have a meltdown after one day. And did, I avoided it that, for years because of that. Did any of that happen? Did you have a meltdown? So I think by the time I went, I was ready to push some of my edges because I was living 
I mean, look, I travel the world speaking around the planet. I don't live in a fixed home. I'm in hotels all the time. I mean, there's nothing normal about my life. And yet I would still say that I live a circumscribed existence because I cushion myself. Even if I'm traveling long distance, it's like three days to get over the jet lag, you know, three days after the event before I fly again. Like I, I cushion myself so that I'm protecting my, my rest and my well-being, you know, and my sleep schedule and all these things. But that eventually was actually making me a prisoner of my own quirks oh yeah think about yeah, like, yeah, yeah. you, know, you about feed like your a, neuroses yeah think about a musician on tour and they're like oh well, he has to have like the pepperoni pizza served at seven in the hotel you know people get weird when they when they any creative who eventually gets some success gets weird because his quirks are now part of his contract you know and Ooh, I, I like that yeah. i want my quirks to be part of my contract totally. i'm weird and, and i have to coddle my damn self yeah there you go but I think I think with with Burning Man, I got I got to the point where I had a certain amount of, of of success as a creative person. But here I was talking about resilience and stepping outside our comfort zones and breaking ourselves open and all these beautiful poetic things that I intellectually apprehended and I and that I visceral and emotionally viscerally and emotionally have experienced, but only in conditions that I control. So I can give myself catharsis. I can give myself an altered states of consciousness experience. But I'm such a a, 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 an architect of my set and setting that I was literally only surrendering in highly disciplined environments. You know, I was doing disciplined surrender. I was not doing totally ecstatic surrender. And so I was ready to push some of those edges, you know, not to go fully reckless, but definitely it's like, can I go crack myself open in a place where I don't control all the conditions? And what if I sleep like shit for the first three nights? You know, will I still be able to get inspired when I see the art or will I be so fucking tired that something else will happen? And so that's when I finally was like, I'm ready to go, you know? And sure enough, um, there was a lot of discomfort. I had to sit with a lot of discomfort, like the oppressive heat, the horrific dust, the no showering. But I think the worst was on certain evenings where I really wanted to get to bed at two or three in the morning and the throbbing bass beat, like breaking through the walls of my RV and my earplugs, not letting me sleep and sitting with that. Cause that's for me is when I start getting the panic, you know, it's like 3am and I want to sleep and it's noisy that's like when I start to like really be like, I'm going to have a fucking meltdown. And I had to like sit and remain steady in that state, you know? And I know people are probably rolling their eyes and being like, this guy's such a wuss. But like, again, those were my edges. To operate on the level that I can operate. If you think of yourself as an athlete, right? And for what you do, whatever your craft is, and you're doing it in a way that people are like, wow, like, how do you do what you do? I'm like, well, I treat myself like an athlete. You know, the athlete that goes to bed at 7 p.m. The athlete that has the super strict schedule, almost monk-like schedule. And that's how, you know, what is it that Flaubert said? Be disciplined and orderly in your life so you can be violent and original in your work, you know? And so that's kind of how I was living my life. And Burning Man was a chance to like temporarily break those shackles away. And what did you get out of that? Did you experience an, a breakdown and then get to the other side of it? When Definitely. you were sitting with that experience of panic, yeah. did you feel the edge melt away yes. into a horizon? Yes. Yes, I think what was nice is knowing that um, whatever that nebulous fear of what was about to happen, you know, when you, when you, when you kind of um, negatively pre-configure the future where you're like, Oh, if I don't sleep and then I remember how I felt last time I didn't sleep. And so that's how it's going to feel then, you know, mm. I was able to sit with all those edges of anticipation of antis of like negative anticipation and, 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 and allow the present to supersede the past experience of future expectation 
And there's a guy called David Lenson. He wrote a book called On Drugs, and it's about the phenomenology of drug use. And one of the most interesting things, there's a chapter where he's talking about bad trips. And he says that uh, expectations are in some sense permanent and that sight and hindsight can flip sides during psychedelic experiences. And so anything, any baggage, any fears that you bring to a psychedelic experience, which is just an amplified experience of consciousness, you know, it's a massive amplifier of the inner processes of consciousness. So you can have a bad, a bad trip while on drugs, but you can also have a bad trip without drugs, you know? And so he says that what happens um, during bad trips is that um, you're experiencing temporal dislocation. He says basically some past trauma, some past formative experience, some past idea that you have about how you're going to react in some situation because of something that happened in the past, okay, has is is been like undigested, right? So you're bringing that past experience to the doorstep of every moment. So the past experience before you take the psychedelic experience, yeah, sure. Or in my case, before I got to Burning Man and actually experienced the loud noise, you know, I just. I've had a couple of experiences where I flew somewhere, I had to give a speech the next day, and the fucking hotel room was really loud, and I couldn't sleep, and I was fucking panicking, and I had to didn't and had to give a speech the next day, whatever whatever your trauma was, you know, about like having to have a certain amount of rest by a certain time so that you can function in the world and meet your responsibilities and whatever the fuck it is, you know. Um, so the past experience is now over determining the present, so you're actually misjudging what's going on because you're seeing it through the lens of your expectation. So the past overdetermines the present and conjures up a future that becomes identified with doom, disaster, catastrophe, death, you know? Um, and so essentially you're, you're not in the present, right? You're in temporal. The past overdetermines the present, conjures up a future identified with doom. And the only cure for that is to actually stay in the present and so that you allow the present to supersede the past expectation. And that's, that's exposure therapy, yes, essentially. Exposure. Yeah. Correct. And, that, and, that's, and that's what Burning, and that's Man, what Burning Man was for you. Correct. Yeah. So my question is, what? how are you different now? I think that um, how I'm different is that I, th I think I'm more steady. I think that in general, my anxiety levels the baseline of my anxiety levels are probably lower. Um, my tolerance for uncertainty, I think, is lower. Um, you know, you have to understand, I've, for the last like six, seven years, I've lived largely kind of on the road. And in some senses, has been beautiful and glamorous. I travel the world, I give talks, it's awesome. But on the other hand, it's like you never know where you're going to sleep and am I going to be able to sleep and I have a talk the next day and what if I fuck up, you know, like, and what if I fucking am humiliated? I mean, the, the, the pressure and the burden of speaking to a thousand people, you know, like on a regular basis, is you learn to live with it, but it's it's a heightened intensity that you're bearing on your shoulders. Well, and, and you're not just speaking to a thousand, ten thousand people. Right. You are performing in a, in a, you are performing and modeling a peak state That's in a right. sense. The whole you're, talk. Yeah. It's like you can't just show up and talk about flow. You actually have to show up in a flow state. And this is something that I've really wondered about yeah. you. Yeah. Can you fake it or do you really have to turn on? And if oh, you no, can't have, fake it, right. are you really showing up for each and every one of these talks and each and every one of these moments and activating a, authentic flow state i am but the but then the consequence of that and you can you know if you ever have a chance to interview stephen kotler who wrote the rise of superman i mean he'll tell you you know like he is a flow junkie flow saved his life he built he, he arranges his whole life around his flow and for him it's mostly writing although he sometimes speaks 
But when he talks about his relationship with sleep, when he talks about how antisocial he has to be, when he talks about how he nurtures his flow cycles, you know, there's a lot of sacrifices that are made. You know, to show up on stage with that, in, with the intensity of aliveness that I have to display and that I have to evoke to be in a flow means that so many, the other 23 hours of my day are lived more like a monk. The fetching water, the chopping wood, the sleep, the solo time, the avoiding other people, the avoiding other stimuli that could be draining, that could cause adrenal fatigue, that could cause cognitive fatigue before I go on stage is something that I have to negotiate with myself. You know, and granted, that's why you get paid what you get paid for corporate speaking or for speaking in general. But it is a negotiation, you know, that you have to make with yourself. And it does come with a lot of compromises. Having said that, when I am on stage, you know, I am living in a cliche as it sounds, I feel in purpose, right? Because I'm in a profound flow state where everything I've ever thought about that has been meaningful and important to me gets condensed and distilled into my performance on stage it's like i'm drawing from all the material in my consciousness that i've picked up along the way that's meaningful and i'm stringing it all together in real time in a kind of freestyle spoken word kind of a way and i'm linking together through lines and bringing domains of ideas together and the only fucking spine that i have for my speeches that i know that i'm showing like three or four videos and that's the only spot. The rest is complete stream of consciousness. So I have to deliver. My consciousness has to be in a certain state for me to trust that I can like throw myself into that audience and do that, you know. And remember, there's a contract. It has to be a certain length. You know, I have to deliver. You know, corporate audiences are pretty fucking strict, you know. And so to bring flow and awe and wonder and inventiveness and 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 all of the, all that I bring, but at the same time to keep it in the line, to not do anything inappropriate, to not overstep how much I can push them or nudge them, it's a whole thing, you know. And it also means that there's other things that I can barely. You know, to develop that muscle means to not develop another muscle, you know. It's why I'm not like a fucking yogi, you know. When I go to yoga class, I feel like a five-year-old who's just like, what the fuck, I can't fucking touch my toes. You know what I mean? Like, there there are things that don't get developed when you've spent so much of your time, like, harnessing your skills for one particular thing, you know. I imagine that the listener, like myself, yeah. feels a deep desire to spend more time in flow. Because mm. flow is yeah. all the joy of meditation yeah. with the purpose and productiveness yeah. that in our modern Western culture we so yeah. laud. Yeah. You know, Speaking directly to the listener right now, yeah. who might be stuck, who might not know how to access flow, what would be like a one, two, three steps to start getting into flow or mm -hmm. to start exploring where flow might live for you yeah yeah so in 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 the rise of superman and in stealing fire stephen kotler and also his co-writer jamie wheel they, they they go into a basic definition of flow which is essentially a state of consciousness in which you feel your best which is great but you also perform your best so it's it's kind of a win-win. Yeah, it's like the ultimate win. It's if I could be in flow all the time, yeah, I would not be such right. a mopey, that's you know, right. anxiety-riddled that, mess. That's right. So you feel your best and you perform your best. And flow is cognitively expensive. You get basically a hit of like all the best pleasure neurochemicals that you can possibly get like dopamine and andamide all that stuff cognitively expensive meaning your diet supports no, that your well, rest no, supports that, that, like that that when you have 
that flows have cy- that flow has a cycle that there are flow cycles there's flow crashes that that rest relaxation sleep all these things are where you re up all that neurochemistry that you expend when you're in flow so you can't be in flow all the time flow follows focus so typically um being engaged by what you're doing is going to is going to facilitate flow and there's all these flow triggers that that Stephen Kotler talks about he talks about like novelty is huge because the brain tends to want to save energy and one of the ways it saves energy is by relying on like mental maps of the world or algorithms that it's built over time so you don't really have to engage with your environment because you have a kind of internal map of that environment you know who this person is you know you know this home you know the route you take to work you know you know the people you interact so so you're running on autopilot essentially but novel experiences or experiences that violate those pre-existing expectations hurl you into the present you know and so novelty feeds flow and so what what constitutes that can be travel it can be getting a new hobby changing your routines dating somebody new like all that stuff engaging in a challenging thing risk also can lead to flow not too much risk that overwhelms you but just enough risk that fucking raises the stakes like going to burning man like going to Burning Man, like fucking surfing, you know, like skydiving. Like surfing, they particularly highlighted in Stealing Fire yeah. as as meditation, psychedelics, and surfing were three of the things that yeah. I remember them specifically analyzing. Yeah, that for book. sure, for sure. And, and, and you kind of know you're in flow by there's a kind of a checklist or an ac- an acronym they call STIR, which means selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, and richness, information richness. So your sense of self vanishes when you're in flow. Like flow follows focuses. You're hurled into the present and your sense of self, like the inner chatter, the second guessing, the inner critic, that goes quiet. And they've done fMRI scans on the brains of like athletes in flow or jazz musicians in flow or freestyle rappers in flow. And I guess they call it the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, whatever, science term for the inner critic, the inner Woody Allen, that goes quiet. So selflessness, then there's timelessness. And that's where the whole thing we were talking about, Kairos and Kronos. Mm -hmm. So if your default state is like attached to the clock, what time is it? Oh, do I have to be here by a certain time? Like, you know, like it's mechanized cognition. It's not flow. It's not going with the time that is flowing that, but it's the time that is being quantifiably measured. But when you're in flow, aside from losing your sense of self, you lose the Kronos, you lose your sense of time and you go into Kairos, into poetic time. Time acts strangely. Time gets warped, dilated or shortened. You know, it's the endless summer or it's the ecstasy of a a minute that sounds like forever or a forever that feels like a minute, you know? So selflessness, timelessness, effortlessness, or what Jamie Wheel calls effortless effort, whatever activity you're doing. I mean, it's, it, it, you don't. It makes me think of Tai Chi or like some kind of flowing. Yeah, or your flowing conversation while you hike the mountain, you didn't feel tired the whole hike, you know, like whatever, you know, or, or if I'm doing a video or if I'm keynoting, like I'm talking for 45 minutes, I don't feel tired. Um, so anyway, yeah, so that's, uh, effortless time selflessness timelessness effortlessness and finally information richness information richness means you basically have access to more information you're getting more data more megabits per second in your perception you know and that's why elite uh, elite athletes that fucking always pushing the limits of what human beings can do are in such deep flow because fucking they're experiencing like time dilation they can make so many decisions like imagine those surfers or those gymnasts that are doing like a thousand flips in the air like how much data processing is going on, you know, that they can do something and constantly push the envelope of the possible. And, um, and of course, the reason for that is because when you're in a flow, you get a boost of dopamine among all the other neurochemicals and dopamine boosts lateral thinking, it boosts pattern recognition, it gives you all of these like, it raises all these edges for you. Um, can, can flow be made exponential through groups? Um, well, yeah, group flow is like, uh, is another 
quality that's possible within flow. So you can have an individual flow if you're like surfing or if you're like playing music, whatever it is. But like if you're in a band or if you're in a concert with people, if you're doing some shared activity, the Navy SEALs they talk about mm, in yeah, yeah. Stealing Fire, they talk about this thing called the click or the shift, you know, which is, yeah, it becomes this group flow where decision-making is happening almost like when you see flocks of birds going together in the sky, like the human equivalent. It's like swarming. Swarming, yeah. 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 Swarm behavior. And people will say that it's like you go into this trance where you can read each other's thoughts and anticipate each other's body actions and you know you just coordinate amazingly and for sure like virtuoso ballet dancers I, gymnasts I, I, I soccer don't... players like a team like the brazilian team in the world cup when they get into group flow i mean of course i, I think course i think burning man itself i think burning man itself is like a landscape of group flow definitely and 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 i would go so far as to say not a landscape of a synchronized group flow of peak but a sort of bubbling effervescence of peak and valley where at, where at Burning Man, it's heightened everything. So there's moments where you're in flow, but there's also moments where you're disengaged from the flow of everyone else that is painfully uh, it, like expelled oh, from sure. the flow. Yeah. I yeah. love it. I mean, it. it makes sense. I mean, even, even, even the fact that when human beings communicate with each other um, or when you click with somebody and you have chemistry with somebody, they call that brain coupling, but they have found that your brain waves actually can synchronize. So human beings can become like entrained with one another at the level of like their brain waves through wirelessly engaging. You know, it's not like there's a cable connecting our fucking nervous systems together, but simply the act of communication or having chemistry, having a connection with somebody can entrain your brains together. I've, we I've, know that that's a fact. So it can happen, you know, one to one, one to many, you know, when a performer is evocative and everybody is in training with him, you know, watching a musician, you know, and I think that happens a lot in Burning Man. One to one, one to many, many to one, et cetera. I, I feel that when I'm doing a podcast, it goes one of two ways. Yeah. Either there's the moment of shared vulnerability and openness and click where it's really happening. And then at the end of the podcast, I actually feel energized and excited. Or I feel like I'm trying to pull it the whole time. And at the end of the podcast, I'm like kind of exhausted. And I feel like maybe I got some good content, but I don't know. But if I get that click in and yeah. I like sit into the current... At the end, I'm just like, well, that was awesome. Yeah, like that was a sure. great experience. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, it is an altered state. Um, there's a guy called Martin Buber. Again, <laughs> the way my brain works, I, I came across this article once that was talking about the two types of thinkers. They're like rote memorizers and there's associational thinkers. And so people who learn by association, that definitely rings true for me, at least linguistically. Um, so what happens is, you know, I'll be reading about flow states through like Stephen Kotler's work and then... I'll get to a chapter on like group flow. And then that reminds me of like a TED talk where this Israeli guy was talking about brain coupling and how the neurochemistry of when people click or when people have chemistry, their brain waves become entrained and literally synchronized. And I'm like, oh, that's fucking cool. That, well, that sounds like definitely like having a group flow with another person, you know? So, so it's like I'll link one person's ideas, reflections, and research with the ideas of another. Like that's how I get mind map connections in my brain. And then like I'll be reading an article like brain pickings. Do you follow brain pickings? Oh, I love brain pickings. I love brain yeah, pickings. Yeah, that's a, she, she, yeah, so she does a really I great think job. she's an associational thinker. Yeah. The first Mar Maria, par Maria Popova. Popova. The yeah. first paragraph of every article, she'll start explaining what she's going to talk about and she'll provide like six hyperlinks to like five other thinkers who have their take on the same thing. She brilliantly mind maps. But anyway, so she has an article, wrote an article about this guy called, uh, I, I believe it was her, maybe it was another publication, Martin Buber. Martin Buber was a Jewish mystic who um, talked about two different ways that human beings um, relate to one another. 
So he talked about I-it relationships or I-thou relationships. And this you could connect back to the Kronos and Kairos. So I-it relationships are the day-to-day default world, what he calls transactional or instrumentalist relationships, you know? Me and my Uber driver, you know? I'm not meeting another human being in that moment. I'm meeting the human being collapsed into one utilitarian role. I'm the passenger, he's the yeah. Uber driver. Or, or me meeting with my accountant or me in a restaurant and the waiter is taking my order. So or, those or are possibly even you with a partner if the partnership has narrowed into a certain correct. kind of fraught dynamic. Correct, correct. And so these transactional and instrumentalist relationships, on the one hand, are necessary to have an organized society where collaboration and cooperation and the division of labor and the division of roles are necessary. Like when I get in my Uber, I want my Uber to take me to my destination and I pay him and it's transactional and it's fine. Sometimes we can have small talk, but in general, he's doing his job and I'm doing my job. Do you know what I mean? He says that that's necessary, but it needs to have regular oscillations between these I-it relationships and I-thou encounters, he calls them. So whereas I-it is instrumental and 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 um, uh, instrumental and whatever the fuck. Transactional. Transactional, thank you. Um, I-thou encounters are non-transactional encounters with the totality of another person. And I think that Burning Man is a place where most encounters, especially after you've done with Build Week, are I-thou. Well, it's there it's is a decommodified no, space. Yes, yeah. yeah, decommodified. So it's 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 you're encountering another person in the timeless. You're encountering another person no longer in Kronos, but in Kairos. And so you see the totality of another being. And there is nourishment from I-thou relationships. And I believe that an I-thou relationship is also like a very, very, very kind of, I was going to say a, a connection of flow, a group flow with another person that occurs in a realm outside of time. So, you know, you know? This, this brings up a really interesting point. You are Jason Silva. Now, now you are Jason Silva of the videos. You yeah. are the person who at Burning Man and other spaces, people come up and say, oh, you're Jason Silva. Yeah. And to me, that's an I-it relationship, not an I-thou relationship. Even though people are inspired by you and they want an I-thou relationship, they want a deep connection with you, what they're connecting to is your shtick, is your persona, is yeah. your is your is yourself. And what's interesting about you is that your shtick, your persona is heightened flow psychedelic open love connection yeah but i would imagine that for you it may be extremely fatiguing to constantly be meeting people who are meeting jason silva and they have something to say and it's very much about them but they're not meeting you in the state that you're in in that moment they're meeting the you from the video yeah no that's that's very interesting because I would say that my, yeah, 100%. The work that I do, you know, whether it's a video about love or a video about neuroscience or a video about awe or altered states or technology, and a lot of people say, you know, even if you don't follow everything I'm saying, you're getting infected by the state of consciousness that I'm in, you know? So my videos are glimpses or divinations or, or portals to an altered state, you know, like a song might be. And so when people watch that, they also mirror that. 
My videos are also very fast-paced. You know, Stephen Kotler explained this to me. We can only hold about three or four items in working memory during conscious processing. My videos flood you with much more than that. So what happens as a viewer is you can't consciously process everything that's happening. That's why it's an espresso shot. So right? you move you move to unconscious processing. And unconscious processing can hold many, 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 many more items in mind at once. But unconscious processing, you've actually had a state change. Now you're in an altered state. So I think when people watch my videos, they actually experience an altered state. And you're right. They only know me in a way they're interacting with me in a kind of hybrid because they're having a transactional relationship with an I-thou state. <laughs> because, because think about it. I mean, it's like they're fucking seeing poetry, but they're hitting play and having their hit of poetry in a transactional way. So when they meet me in the real world, it's very confusing because on the one hand, they've had these downloads with me or through my work or with my work that are non-transactional because they've been encounters with the sublime through my work, but they at the same time are transactional because my work has been commodified. There's a YouTube channel, there's a list, a playlist of videos they can hit play. So I'm playing in this very interesting in-between space between giving people glimpses of non-transactional, deep flow, I-thou spaces, but I'm offering it to them in a way that's totally transactional. Visit my website and hit play on my videos. Well, and how I mean, that... that's what I, well, the, the, how, I mean, how, what are we going to say? How's that possible? No, I was, no, I was oh. going to say, how does that feel for you? Um, how does it feel to be on the receiving end of these accolades that represent your presentation in the world? Do you feel a connection when you meet your fans? I do if I have recently published fresh content. So, you know, I do these videos and I, I, I really, I create the space, I create the context, I create the reverie, I evoke the reverie, and then my videos are typically like trip reports. They're in response to really meaningful experience. So I had to create the set and setting for a meaningful experience to happen so that in the video can typically follow that meaningful experience. But oftentimes I get caught up in the day-to-day, -day, in Kronos, and managing my affairs, managing my schedule, organizing the travel for my next talk, closing deals, making deals. Like I'm I'm really good at operating in Kronos and default world. Like I'm really effective. I have a lot of street in me. You know, I'm from fucking Venezuela. I'm fucking on guard. I don't let anybody fuck with me. Like I'm really good operating that space. But sometimes I'll stay in that space for like three or four weeks. Sometimes it'll be three or four weeks where I have not like smoked a joint or gotten into an altered state or anything. And when it's been like three or four weeks that I haven't done or gone into those spaces that evoke my content, then if I encounter a fan, I feel imposter syndrome because mm. they're coming and giving a hug and offering praise and thanking me for something that I did several weeks ago that I don't feel as connected to anymore. And so I've realized that in order to receive any kind of praise in, in, in humility and grace, I need to have a short interval between the last time that I was in those states. That's, that's my relationship with it. And as far as like taking the poetic and the non-transactional and then packaging it and distributing it in the world in a very commodified way, I'm actually at peace with that because I think that needing to make a living or wanting to make a living living is not a self-serving or selfish act. You know, it's like Joseph Campbell says, you're on a quest to save the world, but to save yourself. And in doing so, you save the world. So like if I'm able to get beautiful work and I'm able to distribute it in a transactional way enough that it scales and enough that it gets seen and enough that it creates feedback and opportunity for me to monetize my life and make a living as a speaker and this and that, 
that's totally fine because at the end of the day, what I'm commoditizing isn't cigarettes. I'm commoditizing, if anything, like invitations and intimations and reminders and, and, and glimpses of states of mind that people find very healing. And even if the way that they found it was commodified, oh, I went on Google and I searched inspirational video and they found the Jason Silva video. If that was a, a stepping stone for them going on some really deeply meaningful journey, then it's perfectly okay to transact in those spaces. You know, I'm okay with, I am okay with them, um, with, art and commerce working together. You know, I think there are degrees. I wouldn't do an ad for a cigarette company. I wouldn't do a shot of awe video for a cigarette company, you know, but I've never, I would have no problem working with like a cannabis company and doing a video about flow for them, for example, you know, like, so I think there are degrees to which every artist has to decide what he's comfortable with. But again, I think commodification is not always bad, especially if what you're commodifying is portals and entry points to spaces that are beyond commodity that that's okay and i know that sounds a little contradictory but i've made peace with it i actually had this conversation um with vince of meow wolf um this exact subject and and i suffered from the myth of the starving artist when i was younger which is a myth that i think comes often for people who come from privilege you know like i my father's a successful stockbroker my mother's family descendant of san francisco industrialist not like crazy privilege but definitely privilege you know my my liberal arts education was paid for by my family um so yeah grandma paid for me and all of my cousins all of her grandchildren had their college private college paid for by my grandma so I, i i was very privileged and i'm so grateful for for that and and that and there's something I think with that privilege and creating art, there's kind of a myth of like, well, to find authenticity in my work, um, it must be completely decommodified because my artistry is the non-transactional opposite of my my Your parents, privilege. where I come from, and somehow I can be washed of the guilt of my privilege by virtue of this immaculate art that comes from suffering. Mm. I've grown out of that. I don't Good. think that, I, and I don't think that artists listening to this podcast uh, should hold on to that myth because you need to be nourished in this world. Well, I'll give you one example of why the myth of the starving artist um, is obsolete. My favorite art in the world is cinema, and when a not, not there's a lot of garbage, there's a lot of bad movies out there, but when a magnificent film scales and has a wide release, and makes $100 million, and it's still a magnificent film, I'm fucking happy. What's a great example of that for Dude, you? Dude, I mean, what Chris do you love? Nolan's Inception, yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or Ari Hester's Midsummer, just that just came out, that horror film. Did you see that? I haven't seen That's it That's like no. an art house, art house horror film that made, I don't know how much, I mean, $100 million, you know? And, and so for me, it's like, when you are able to scale and mass produce art, then you've won. Because first of all, I'm being selfish. I wouldn't have gotten to see that movie if it didn't fucking have a big budget publicity to bring it to my attention, if it didn't scale, if it wasn't playing in a movie theater that I had access to. Like, I like when good art is massively commoditized. I don't like when bad art is because I think that just like stupefies its audiences. But when good art scales, that's beautiful. Like, I want my favorite actors and my favorite directors to make a fucking shitload of money. I want them to be given a hundred million dollars to make their next opus, you know? And if they fuck it up, well, the market is the toughest disciplinarian that there is, you know? But if they do a good job, yeah, they should fucking be rewarded, you know? And granted, maybe once they become too successful, they lose their edge because when you're first starting out, 
maybe you have more of, a, of an edge because you want it so bad, but that's like a different story. But I am okay with artists being rewarded for their for their gifts, especially if they're making a meaningful contribution. And the only way that you can scale good art is through mercantilizing it, you know, like marketing and scale and commodifying it in, in a sense. I want to take a little turn here because there's a question that I really want to ask you. And okay. just before we started recording, you reminded me of the fact that you cannot be incriminated by um, describing your own experiences with substances. And I have a question um, that others have asked me about you and that I've thought about with you, which is, it's my understanding that you don't use psychedelic substances for the most part. I, what I'd like to know if you're willing to yeah. to share is... What psychedelic substances have you used sure. and what sort of insights, because you speak about the psychedelic realm, um, yeah. and I'm curious what your access points to that have been in terms of the substances, sure. the trips you've had, um, yeah. and if you did any drugs at Burning Man. Yeah, well, the irony, <laughs> is, the irony is that when I was 16 and I had never tried any mind-altering drug, and here I was growing up in Venezuela, where all my friends, since eighth grade, everybody was smoking pot, I went to a school where... It was a very privileged private international school. Everybody was doing MDMA. Everybody was doing LSD. Everybody was doing every drug before I even smoked my first joint. However, I probably read more books about psychoactive substances than everybody in my high school. So, But how does that work? Why were you reading all of these books, but you didn't want to try it? Because I don't respond to peer pressure. And when everybody's doing something, I'm not into it, you know? Like I just automatically am a bit of a rebel in that sense. And instead, I become curious about what they're doing and I want to read about it. And then I want to ask them questions based on what I've read. And when they give me some stupid answer, like, ah, bro, you just have to try it. I'm like, that's not very compelling. Sorry, bro. <laughs> you know, um, I remember reading a book called Marijuana Myths, Marijuana Facts, which was wonderful. And and one of the things that it did was it, ba it basically educated me about the whole like reefer madness campaign against yeah, yeah. cannabis. I and I became very interested in cannabis. But the main thing also, is I have a very low tolerance for risk in general. I, I, I tend to be, I tend to always uh, imagine the worst case scenario and then decide if I'm still comfortable doing that. And the main thing what they, people used to say about all substances is that, oh, they, it rots your brain, causes brain damage. And I remember at 16 reading about cannabis and seeing, oh, it actually has zero neurotoxicity. It's one of the safest substances you can take. Alcohol is much more dangerous. Of course, tobacco is infinitely worse. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. My grandfather died of emphysema complications. I'm terrified of cigarettes. But Everything I read about cannabis was really compelling, and especially the subjective accounts of its effects, particularly Carl Sagan's seminal essay uh, that he wrote under a pseudonym called Mr. X, which was about Carl Sagan's experiences with marijuana. And I was just fascinated, and I had an uncle who smoked pot, and I had an aunt who smoked pot, and they, they were both very cool. And so eventually I told my dad, I was like, oh, I really want to try I wanted to try smoking a joint and uh, I'd rather do it with you than with my friends because I was really afraid of like laced weed. I didn't want to get something that was laced wow. or this and that. And so my dad and his uh, his wife at the time, because my parents were divorced, they got some some ganja and we smoked a joint for the first time. And I remember four, you know, a lot of people smoke pot multiple times when they're young and it doesn't do anything to them. Have you heard that? That thing? I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. Did this do it? People have to like learn to notice its effects the first couple of times. That was not my problem. I was like four hits in, and I had a full on psychedelic trip, like full on, like asking my dad if this was reality or if I was dreaming or if this was reality, like back and forth between fits of laughter and like and like absolute panic that the effects were never going to go away and that I was going to stay this way. So like very high and low 
moments of just agitation and fear and then like exhilaration and looseness, you know, like freedom and then terror that in the chaos that would ensue from that freedom, I would make a mistake or something could go wrong. But the point being, I realized I was from that first time, I, I, I it's a very, I'm very, 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 very sensitive to THC. And I experimented with it a few times after that. And, you know, I have this very funny, there's a funny video of me and my friend, like, I think we were like in ninth grade. And he was a big pothead. And so we both get super high. And he's like comatose on the couch, like reading a magazine. And I'm ranting to the camera about the universe and the meaning of existence. And can you believe it? You know, not quite in a manic state, but definitely in a hypomanic state, which in turn I have then studied and paid attention to and noticed what that is. And so there's a book called The Hypomanic Edge. And hypomania is essentially a, a, a mild form of mania, but with high executive function. So rather than the fire hose like controlling you, you're controlling the fire hose. And I realized that I had a relationship with cannabis at the time that it evoked hypomanic tendencies. So increased pattern recognition, increased exuberance, um, heightened perception, um, and intensification of the senses. And that the response for me, it, it was an experience that was profound and then immediately it forced me to marshal a response. And that response came in language. So it was a very interesting feedback loop between like getting high, having my senses heightened, and having this intensification of wonder and curiosity and then like in reflecting and contemplating what I was going through, that feedback loop in turn heightened the ways that ideas were connecting in my head, which I then would verbalize and then I would be delighted by my verbalizations. And it just in the right set and setting was such a positive snowballing feedback loop of free association. And then I went deep down the rabbit hole of why that's the case. And then I found out that Cannabis has a history of being used for improvisational art forms. Jazz, the history of American jazz, wouldn't be jazz if it wasn't for cannabis. That was the main substance that was used by jazz musicians. Freestyle rap, same thing. They smoke a big joint before they freestyle. Why is that? Well, because cannabis facilitates free association. It boosts dopamine and increases pattern recognition. So it's perfect for improv. It's perfect for free association. It's perfect for what I was enjoying about it. You know, It was fucking Terrence McKenna's primary medicine even though he talked about psychedelic mushrooms and dmt the main thing that he used on a regular basis that 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 heightened and energized his verbal rap which mckenna is known for was cannabis and i've talked to rick doblin who runs maps about this and he says hey man like that's a plant medicine you know like people tend to be dismissive of pot because it's gone so mainstream but cannabis is a plant medicine and cannabis will take you as far as lsd if you let it these are the words of Rick Doblin. Now, because of the the the, the range of spaces of mind that, that that were evoked by cannabis for me, even from a young age, made me have a very um, intentional, delicate, and respectful relationship with it. Because I also experienced what all the teenagers experience when they get too high, like paranoia, like panic attack. Like I've had enough of those. You know, oh my god, like I flipped a switch, my mind, I've lost my mind, I'm gonna go crazy, like all those fears, and so. I just I developed a, a relationship with that at the time that I knew that in, if I if I calibrated set and setting, then a substance that increases resonance with set and setting um, would give me an experience that I could essentially preconstruct. To the best of my abilities, I could mitigate against anxiety, which is what I wanted because what I wanted to was to surrender ecstatically into it. 
I wanted to laugh. I wanted to experience joy and wonder and awe. And I wanted to come back and tell the tale. You know, what I didn't want was to be sidelined by some weird look from some friend I didn't know very well who started to get a weird look in his eyes when he was stoned. And then I'm like picking up on his anxiety. And then that's fucking ruining my trip and the whole thing. And so it, I just was like, oh, I understand how this works. And I'm going to use it to the best of my abilities for creative, intentional, um, sacred work, you know, and that's been my relationship with cannabis for years. From that has been a kind of apprehension about partaking in things like LSD and mushrooms for two reasons. It's illegality made me very concerned about like, you're dealing with a substance like LSD, which works on micrograms. I'm like, oh, who's manufacturing this? How do, a microgram, how do you properly measure a dose? What is the meso dose? What is the full on dose? Like too many questions and not getting enough reassuring answers from people that I was just like, you know what? Maybe not yet, you know? Um, same with mushrooms. I was just like, what if I have a really fucking bad trip, you know? These substances now and all these studies that are being done and Johns Hopkins and Imperial College of London have found that, that you know, psychedelics can potentially absolve you of trauma, but they can also cause trauma. In the wrong set and setting and at the wrong dose, they can cause as much trauma as they can dissipate. And that's no joke. And and the 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 thoughtlessness and carelessness with which so many people partake in these substances, I think is stupid. I often cite Jordan Peterson's paraphrasing of Carl Jung when he says, beware of unearned wisdom. Ah, uh, yeah, I like that line as well. Beware of unearned wisdom. And he says, you know, you might not be the vessel that can handle that divine fluid. It's like the Ark of the Covenant. God is in there, but if you look at it, you die. And I just, I just was like, okay, like there's no rush, you know? So for years I experimented with with cannabis and have a great relationship with it. And then I've, I've avoided the LSD mushroom route for a while. And then I had the opportunity to experiment with uh, MDMA. And MDMA I found magnificent. And the reason was I did a lot of research on how empathogenics are different than classic psychedelics. And and what struck me the most was that they work primarily with the fear response in the brain. So oh, essentially my one fear of the classic psychedelics is the bad trip. It's like the fear taking over the trip and me falling into a feedback loop I can't get out of. But with MDMA, the whole point of it is that it's for that it's for trauma. It's for impending doom, catastrophic thinking. And it mitigates precisely that fear response in the brain. Lowers activity in the amygdala, boosts activity in the frontal cortex, stimulates you because it's an amphetamine while simultaneously making you feel relaxed. They call that the optimal arousal zone for psychotherapy. And then this brilliant philosopher called David Pierce, who wrote The Hedonistic Imperative, which is this whole treatise on how we should reverse engineer our brains to genetically create blissful mind-body states like beyond measure. He says MDMA is a glimpse of the perfect human state. He literally says there is no better state of consciousness from which to model the engineering of future minds. But he also says that you can't really do it more than four times a year because of its neurotoxicity. And he says you can't responsibly advocate other classic psychedelics. He says MDMA, everybody should experience, but that he can't reliably um, advocate for the others because the risk of a bad trip is too great, his words. And that just struck me. And so for that reason, I was like, okay, MDMA, I really want to try for fear, for trauma, for a lot of my issues related to fear of impending doom, fear of death, fear of going crazy, fear of illness, like all the things that have to do with like the end of one's life as, as one knows it. And, and I thought it was fucking remarkable. And I'm super stoked that the FDA thinks so too. 
Yeah, I when I used to do the festival gig, yeah. I was the pretty prince of parties, and the pretty prince of parties power juice, it was MDMA. I mean, that was because it's so social and it's so open-hearted. Right. And it's been interesting to watch in festival culture as people have moved through different substances because um, MDMA, as you pointed out, um, at a thir- certain amount of use, it's neurotoxic. And that's a lot of fear that people have. Yeah. And so what I've noticed is people going more into the route realm of ketamine instead of MDMA. And when people, when everyone's partying with MDMA, there's open-hearted, there's a desire to connect. When everyone's partying with ketamine, it's a little weird and it's kind of cool, but it like, it's not necessarily as connected. And there's certainly people who can be hard open with ketamine. I think mm-hmm. that, um, uh, you know, John C. Lilly was, you know, famously doing these incredible experiments oh, yeah. with, with ketamine. Mm-hmm. But I think unconscious ketamine use and using different kinds of ketamine and it's a powder, so cut with different things in a party setting actually creates a disjointed um, congregation. Oh, sure. Whereas MDMA is more likely, yeah. and yeah. it has its problems too. But it's interesting yeah. that, that you've had the experience with MDMA. Oh, and, I, and, and one of the things that struck me so much is that the way that they designed the psychotherapies with it is... Um, this is for PTSD? This is yeah, the for stuff PTSD, they were doing with veterans? Yeah, PTSD, trauma, anxiety, you know, soldiers coming back from wars and not being able to leave their house, you know. Um, cognitive repatterning and like reliving old fears from a place of such safety that allows you to transform the memory, essentially change the past, you know. Um, the therapist doesn't really have to do much. Like once, they call it spontaneous self-healing or body intelligence. Once you are, for someone who's never been in these kinds of states, you feel so safe, especially if you're somebody whose primary um, preoccupation has been with feeling safe. The feeling of safety you get with MDMA, like the safety that you feel inside of that euphoria is a radically new experience. It's like an encounter with another place to plant your feet that's different from anything you've ever known, especially if you're a fear-oriented person, that the healing is just experiential. You know, it, it's like, it's knowledge by acquaintance rather than knowledge by description. And that's why it's such fucking medicine. You know you know what I think MDMA is really great for is, um, are you familiar with attachment theory? Um, the idea that based on the way you experience attachment as a child, mm-hmm. you'll replicate certain attachment patterns romantically, and those are broken down into secure, avoidant, and anxious. Are you I, familiar I, with this yes, idea? Yes, I'm anxious. Yeah, I'm anxious too. Okay. And um, I, I did MDMA at Burning Man. I was planning not to, and I was having a kind of a rocky burn, and on the last night, we were in a good vibe, and I was like, let's just roll our tits off and end up in the orgy dome, you know, standard Burning Man shit. Um, And uh, the experience of safety that I felt with my partner was deeply healing for me and almost like a reset for our relationship in certain ways. There were so many things that we'd been needing to talk about, but not really talking about because we're a little nervous about it. And um, it just flowed so openly and so lovingly. And for me, I have an anxious attachment personality. Um, I know where it comes from in my childhood. Yeah. I've seen the way I've I've um, made it worse over time with with bad choices in relationships, um, and so MDMA as a healing modality in an interpersonal framework like a romantic relationship that is profound stuff. Oh yeah, I am. Um, experienced it twice with a therapist slash nurse. Um, 
just to have a solo session. And I didn't do the eye mask or anything. I was I wanted to talk the whole time, you know. Of course you did. And I and I, you know, I went to a psychologist when I was when my parents first divorced. My mom sent me to a psychologist. And I was like maybe like 11, 12. And I was like a little adult. I was like, I know why I'm here because my heart is broken. My parents are divorced and I can't bear the thought of my mom suffering. And How old were you? Like 12. Wow. Yeah. Super self-aware, super comfortable talking about like my inner life, the whole thing. And so when, when I experienced MDMA with a nurse, I wanted to go in particularly, I had some issues with um, anxiety from um, a sort of fairly traumatic health scare that I had that thankfully ended up being nothing. But what, what was it? I uh, I had indigestion and I fainted a couple of years ago and I never fainted before. And I'm a bit of a hypochondriac, a Jewish hypochondriac. And uh, and I woke up, well, I didn't really fall, but I fainted for like a few seconds and my brother was there. But when I came to, I became convinced that I had had a neurological event, you know, that the fainting was because of a stroke or some crazy thing. And I just had a, an actual full-blown panic attack, like palm sweaty, shortness of breath, thought I wouldn't, not, not going to make it to the hospital, like was convinced that I was dying. It was, it was... Think about, I mean, a full panic attack is a kind of psychosis because you become convinced that what you fear the most is transpiring, even though it's not. And then your system actually replicates those experiences. lost touch with reality. Yeah. That's really fucking scary. So I think one of my biggest fears with the strong classic psychedelics is a panic attack in which I convince myself that the psychosis is real. And ultimately, when when sight and hindsight are flip sides, you know, like... If it's all in the mind, then how do you unconvince somebody who's convinced themselves that they've gone crazy? Like, that's a really fucking scary thing. But anyway, that that panic attack and then going to the hospital and the horrible experience when they look at you like you're crazy because they can clean. And I'm like, check my heart, check my, to a CAT scan, you know. Anyway, for months afterwards, I was having shortness of breath and hyperventilation issues and this and that. And it took me like a, almost a year to fully like physiologically forget or move on or metabolize the, the the echo of that trauma and so my reason for wanting to do mdma was specifically for that i was like i just want physiologically to experience a feeling of such safety that it can act as an inverse ptsd experience that the mdma itself can show me experientially for a sustained duration of time what it feels like not to be scared and and it did that very beautifully. And they say it's not just the session, but it's months afterwards that it's like it's been seeded. So I did two sessions with the nurse, and it was life changing in a sense because that that had become I, everything in my life was great except for this anxiety that wouldn't go away after that episode, even though I was perfectly healthy. But um, um, so I did the MDMA twice, and then since then I've I've, I've done it twice with my girlfriend to explore relationship stuff because both of us um are traumatized. I have uh, fear of abandonment and fear of rejection type of stuff, and deeply attached to my mother and deeply traumatized from my parents divorcing and my mom suffering and me not being able to alleviate her suffering and all kinds of stuff. And my girlfriend had been in a seven-year relationship before me. And so she was focused on sovereignty and protecting her heart and not wanting to get attached, you know, and this and that. And so us doing it together as a couple was the other thing I really wanted to experience. And what was amazing, two things, of course, is to experience love for someone without the fear of losing them. That was a yeah. new experience. Again, knowledge by a much deeper love. And this 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 will come back to our impermanence death yeah. conversation yeah. that I want to touch yeah, on yeah, at the yeah, end. Yeah, yeah. 
love without fear of loss. Love without fear Big of loss. Big deal. I was like, wow, like, okay, like, I actually love you and I want you to thrive and I want everything to be amazing in your life and I'm always going to be there for you. But, like, fuck it. If you get tired of me, if I'm not a good lover, if you decide you want another lover, like, it's not the death of you. It's not the death of us. It's just a change in the status, but who cares? It's all fine. I love you anyway. Like, it's just beautiful to feel that. But the other thing that was so beautiful is to be received in such an accepting way. Mm, because yeah. I often get into this pattern in relationships where I just don't feel like I'm fully and authentically accepted. Like, not fully, you know, like, like maybe my, my ecstasy is not fully accepted or my creativity is not fully accepted or, or, or my passion or the way I do my videos might be irritating to my partner for whatever reason, you know, not to get into details of why that is, but like you can trigger each other when you're too close. Anytime you're too close to somebody, you know, like even qualities about you that they love from afar, from up close can become irritating. And so in the MDMA state was just to, to witness myself being received from such a loving place in her body mind was amazing because it was medicine because i could see the way she was receiving me you know i was like oh wow it's nice to be received that way you know and i'm in a sense one of my one of the most beautiful things of receiving any kind of praise for your creative work is like i'm not talking about like weirdo fans but like a true fan like somebody who truly appreciates your artistry and what you do in the world that they really see you that's unconditional love mm, think yeah. about it they don't they don't want anything from you they're just they're just they feel they're just they just saturate you in grace you know well and they also and see a reflection of themselves in you awesome. i think they they they're edified by like these are my values i see them in you that's and right. by connecting with you that's i'm right. i'm that's edified right. in that. that's right and that's why that's why my work has been so healing you know because i, I ultimately i do my videos for me for i do them for me I, I like to see the final result of something i make but like when somebody else you know, unconditionally kindly approaches me on the street and just wants to give me a hug or a pat on the back like that's so healing because i feel so seen you know, more than in interpersonal relationships often. You know? And even if you're not able to access the flow for them at that moment, it's just the I, presence I, yeah, of being just, there. Yeah, I just, I like the reassuring, unconditional love. It's this quick, short reminder that we're not all just like, you know, zero-sum game trying to eat or be eaten, but that there's like, oh, I see you. I appreciate you. Thank you. I'm like, oh, thank you for seeing me. Wow, that feels so nurturing yeah i i met i met three super fans of my podcast at burning man on the same day and um and i'd been having a rough burn and this is when it really turned around and three of them and each of the three people they each said that they had been hoping to meet me and and um and they each had similar compliments about the show they liked the opening line of what would a home run podcast look like yeah they liked the listening they and what i tried to do in each of those instances um was to reflect back you know what are the values in this show and in me that you see in yourself you know like what let mm-hmm. you know let's talk about you know yeah. what is it and um taylor one of the people who i met um if you're listening taylor she says she's listens listens to all of them so you're probably listening so hey um <laughs> but she was saying the authenticity and that she tries to live her life with authenticity so kind of closing the loop of the of the fan of your work relationship yeah. for me yeah. is when you're having a conversation with someone and and they're reflecting back what matters to them. And then you're reflecting back to them that, okay, well, this thing that matters to you is something in you. And mm-hmm. I'm, you know, 10 years older than you. And I've yeah. been working for a while. Like yeah. cultivate this thing that matters for you and create work that matters for you in this similar way. Mm. Mm. So, so real Beautiful. quick. So you have done MDMA, but you've not ever done mushrooms or ever done LSD or, or any other of the classic psychedelics. That's right. That's not right. microdosed, nothing. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So I have an invitation for you. <laughs> and it's not to do acid right now. But you know what's so house. interesting is maybe <laughs> you can explain why people see my videos and assume I've done like DMT and talked to the machine elves. You know, I, yeah. I've met with Roland Griffiths who runs the Johns Hopkins Center where they're doing all the psilocybin sessions. You know, I've shown him my videos. I've told him about my cannabis experiences. You know, like I was like, dude, like what's up, you know? And he's like, oh, like... Like you've you've clearly had that experience, and then there's other thing people, and then I, I'm not saying that I have. I'm just saying his words. But other people can smoke 25 joints and feel nothing. You know, I can have three hits from a vape pen and look at what comes out. Like look at what comes out of me with just a little bit of cannabis. So it's just like there's there's a temperance there that just feels like okay when I'm ready, just like when I was ready to try MDMA. Like there's just a temperance, and there's just there's, there's just a wanting to make sure that it feels right, that the conditions are met, that I feel like everything about it is ticking my boxes for surrender. Well, so to answer your question about why I think people think that you do psychedelics, specifically microdosing LSD. So my understanding of the psychedelic experience is I I agree with Aldous Huxley's idea of a reducing valve of consciousness mm-hmm. that that the mind is a reducing valve, and in fact. And we'll talk about this a little bit about impermanence. I believe that we are a smaller aperture of divine consciousness. This is my core belief, and I discovered it in an ayahuasca experience. And I feel absolutely clear that this is my belief. And that the brain works to reduce consciousness into something that is manageable for the being that the brain is operating through the world for I it yeah exactly and so when they did the MRI scans uh, fMRI scans at Imperial College London yeah, yeah. they found that um, there was reduced activity in the default mode network that's right um, and unexpected activity between regions that don't usually form networks that's right and this explains synesthesia that's and temporal right. distortion and that sort of Correct. thing So could it be that you cultivating flow state over time in the way that you have, you've actually managed to find much like surfing or meditation, you have your own hack that allows you to reduce your own default mode network activity and that you're, that these associate, this lateral thinking, these associations that you're making are the different, are are these different regions connecting. And so really you are doing what actually psychedelics really are all about, which is doing it yourself in your brain. And so aided by cannabis, aided by aided by cannabis and i think aided by mindset you're so particular about set and setting for sure um and so cannabis is kind of like lighting the fuse but the fuel that's there maybe this metaphor works maybe it doesn't but the fuel that's there is this the over time you your 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 brain has built pathways to be able to do this more easily than many people which which i think is why when people see you in what I've described a bombastic state, an exultant yeah. state, yeah. this this overflowing exuberant yeah. effervescence, yeah. it yeah. looks like LSD to them because that's what they use LSD to achieve. That's right. I think you're spot on. And I also feel like okay, so in the in the in the subcategory of like mind altering substances, plant medicines, right? I'm not talking about like cocaine or crack or meth or anything like that. I'm talking you, about like, you only don't do crack and get some no, flow state. No, no, no. I'm talking about like okay. I'm talking about like okay, cannabis, which is its own category, at least in a, in a, in a neurochemical level. It works primarily with um, anandamide, which is a naturally occurring cannabinoid that we have in the brain, um, and it floods you with that, and it modulates dopamine and all this stuff. But um, when you they put it in its own family, and then the classic psychedelics 
is LSD, which is originally from um, Ergo, yeah, fungi. From the corn, yeah. Uh, the fungi on the corn. Yeah. And then psilocybin, um, and I believe mescaline from the cactus, that these are an umbrella term of like classic psychedelics. They work primarily with the serotonin 2A receptor. Like they all have the same action in the brain. And that's why they, they get clumped together. Even though a psilocybin trip is five hours and, a, and an LSD trip is 12 hours, they actually are interchangeable in what they do to the brain. So when people say, oh, mushrooms are different than LSD, they're wrong. The only thing... Oh, interesting. Oh, no, they're wrong. What, what's different is that the set setting and expectation. Because when they did mushrooms, they were like, oh, it grows in nature. It makes me more connected to nature. That's like placebos on rocket boosters. But really? like, I actually didn't know that. 100%. LSD and psilocybin at the level of the brain, physiologically, exactly the same thing. At Johns Hopkins, when they did the psilocybin studies, the only reason they picked psilocybin instead of LSD was the duration. Yeah, so they could, they could have a work day and then go home. It. Yes, that's it. So the other thing that happens is when people take these substances, they don't realize how much set setting and expectation pre-constructs the trip. So when people are like, yeah, I, don't, I like mushrooms more than LSD, I'm like, well, maybe you prefer the duration time, but the rest is just the fucking story you tell yourself about something that's natural versus something that's synthetic. Because even though LSD is synthesized, it still comes from ergo. It still comes from a fungi, and it's a psychedelic alkaloid that operates on the brain exactly the same way as psilocybin. Now, MDMA, they put it in a different category. Empathogenic works slightly differently in the brain. And as I was saying, cannabis also slightly differently in the brain. And mescaline, I think, is like psilocybin and LSD, but I'm not sure. But the point is, all of them would be considered psychoactive, right? So at some point, you know, Bob Marley, for him, it was fucking cannabis, you know? And then Aldous Huxley, for him, it was mescaline. Not LSD, mescaline. Timothy Leary, it was LSD. And fucking Terrence McKenna, it was mushrooms. What I think is interesting is not the substance, but the experiences that they give rise to. And if the experiences that they give rise to have common through lines across compounds, it matters not. Well, have you tried mushrooms or LSD or that? I'm like, dude, try the one that has frameworks you're comfortable with, but then pay attention to the account of the experience that you have. And that is what I think determines whether you've had a psychedelic experience or not. You know, that's, so that's just my reflection. So a moment ago, I said I had an invitation for you. Yeah. My invitation is, I don't personally think that you need to do LSD. I don't think you need to do anything. But if I was going to invite you to do something, it would be ayahuasca. And here's why. So first of all, for me, there is no state of consciousness that I find to be more exultant than ayahuasca. Um, MDMA is yummy and fearless and beautiful and good. Um, but the state of ayahuasca for me is... That state of, of, I mean, you go through the journey to get there, but that state of security. And part of why that happens is, are you familiar with the, um, the chemical makeup DMT. of an ayahuasca brew? Well, they, it, they have two things because normally the way that you have DMT would be broken down. In your exactly. So yeah. So there's DMT and the other chemical is an MAO right. inhibitor, MAOA inhibitor. That's right. um, but that also is an antidepressant. It also floods your brain with serotonin. So when you're talking about wanting the state of security that you have with MDMA and that you were able to trust that and that that, in a sense, kind of overrided this anxiety that you had, sure. ayahuasca does something similar mm. because of the MAOA inhibitor, yeah. um, which and is a classic antidepressant before they discovered SSRIs. Right, 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 right. So 
for for just on a chemical basis, and I yeah. know that this speaks to you, so yeah. that's no, one no, thing. For sure. But for two, um, I have had my most philosophically mind-blowing Profound. experiences um, in the realms of ayahuasca. I've smoked DMT and blasted in and saw something and then s- syruped back into this realm, and it doesn't, it's not the same thing. I've 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 done iboga, I've done 5-MeO-DMT, I've I have done the substances and my invitation to you, if you do choose that you want to step into one of the psychedelic spaces and you choose just one, <laughs> my vote is for ayahuasca in a traditional ceremony with, um, my, my vote would be if you can do it with a maestro from the Amazon who is working with, um, well, you speak Spanish as well, so that makes a big difference. But, but what I've found to be most poignant is a very traditional maestro working with an actual Western therapist together. I've been in a situation like that before. And that that Western therapist can actually help translate the experience to you as it's happening, working with the maestro who holds the space of the ceremony itself. If you have a chance, yeah. And my, if you want my, a chance, my, my I can, brother had that experience recently and said it was quite blissful. Yeah, but he's I, also a very grounded person. So often the the contents or the, the his accounts of these visionary experiences is is typically very grounded. He says it was beautiful, it was healing. I just felt gratitude. Well, I'm I'm anxious like you, and there's nothing that I've ever experienced in my life that has given me the the just the full blown equanimity of Great. of that portal. And it gets hard, and you throw up, and it's there's stuff that's challenging in yeah. it. But God, it just holds your hand like a loving grandmother mm. and walks you through. And yeah, no, sounds very yeah. sounds very compelling. It's very compelling. So I, I, I'm, I'm glad that we can have the conversation about psychedelics because it's something that's been kind of interesting to me. Well, it's very in vogue nowadays. You know, these substances had a lot of promise in the 1950s, not as drugs, but as like agents for psychotherapy. Um, I can't remember his name. It's the Czech psychologist who said that psychedelics could do for consciousness and the mind what the telescope did for astronomy. Mm. So if you think of it that way, it's like agents to study the contents of mind. That's really interesting. We also know that in the right contexts, they can have real epistemic value because we get into a confusing space when we try to um, unpack the veracity of the interior experience that a person has. You know, you have a psychedelic trip, you commune with the universe, you see God, you see Mother Ayahuasca, you see Jesus, whatever the wallpaper of your religious interpretive framework is tends to determine the trip you have mm, yeah. but I'm, I'm less interested in the veracity of your poetic truth your poetic truth is yours alone but i like to keep church and state separate okay so your poetic truth is truth alone don't try to convince me of the objective truth of your poetic truth your interior experience is for you alone what i'm interested in though is the epistemic value which means once you have a positive experience whatever the contents of that experience are and you come out of it are you no longer depressed are you do you have have you moved one scale in your trait openness are you participating more actively in the world and if all those things are yes then that's all we need to know for these to be legalized agents for psychotherapy we don't need to get into the metaphysical truth of the contents of your experience because that's just for you that's poetry that's like you telling me like what you felt when you met the girl of your dreams i'm like that's never something you can quantifiably measure that's for you and you alone that's your love story that's your poetic truth so at the risk of doing exactly what you've just told me not to do I did want to discuss with you the fact that in an ayahuasca ceremony, I once had a conversation with death. And I'm not saying that because I had a conversation with death, 
and that ameliorated my fear of death in a pretty magnificent way, that that I could somehow transfer that to you. But I'm really interested in your specific relationship to death. And it's popped up in this conversation. Um, You talked about your MDMA experience of loving without fear of loss. And um, I know that you're a big fan of the Dylan line, um, Rage Against the Dying of the Light. And um, for me... I had a psychedelic experience with ayahuasca where I literally had a conversation with death about how death ruins everything and um, <laughs> and how mad I was. And it was very funny and yeah. there's a lot of levity. Mm-hmm. And it was in the context of, you know, a very classic understanding of the oneness of all things. And when you say, um, you know, the proof is in the pudding, what does it look like afterwards? And for me, um, after that, I had a colleague pass away in a car accident. I had my cat die, and my cat Ella, there's a shrine to her there, was like my child who like slept in my bed with me every night. Um, and I'm in a place in my life right now where both my grandmother and my aunt are both getting ready to, to pass on. Hmm. And um, that single experience, that single psychedelic experience, offered me such a profound cognitive reframe around death Mm -hmm. that I don't have the same fear and resistance towards it. And I actually really like death. I actually really like impermanence. And I think it's the resistance to impermanence that causes suffering, not the impermanence itself. Yeah, well, you you hit the nail on the head when you said um, that it gave you a different... Did you say interpretive framework? Cognitive reframe. Cognitive reframe. Sorry. Yeah. So that's, but that's exactly what a ego dissolving positive psychedelic experience is. It's a cognitive reframing. It's what the astronauts feel when they're in orbit. Have you heard of the overview effect? Mm, Yeah. What is the overview effect? It's a recontextualization of the self. So the ego self ends at the edge of our skin tissue right? The integrity of the body with a heart and a brain, and you want to avoid a heart attack, and you want to avoid a brain hemorrhage, and you want to avoid cancer, and all these things that kill the self that ends at the edge of the skin tissue, which is one interpretive framework of what you are. There's a guy called Tim Duty who wrote an account of psychedelics, and ego-dissolving experiences in psychedelics often lead to an expansion of your sense of self. So there's a cognitive reframing that takes place. He says that when you merge with the universe, when you lose track of your own boundaries, when your sense of self, your default mode network, your own boundaries get porous, you merge. You merge with music, you merge with your immediate environment, you merge with your lover, you merge with the cosmos. And then he says to entertain such ontologies is to recontextualize the self, right? Into a marvelous conduit in a timeless void or in a timeless hole from which molecules and meanings flow from neurons to nebula and back again. So basically your conversation with death, somebody's somebody's ego dissolving experiences on mescaline or LSD or witnessing the birth of a child and seeing the continuity of life, the circle of life when they watch the Lion King, whatever it may be. Now the self is not the body, you know, five fingers, five toes, Balls, testicle, desire, hunger, food, reprocreation. No. Now I am a marvelous conduit in a timeless hole from which molecules and meanings flow. Well, from are, are you not? Nebula and back again. And I am all those things, but everyone still dies. So, in other words, that recontextualization, that cognitive reframing is real, but it's also 
doesn't change the fact of people dying. And all of that is true, but that reflection, I still believe, is operating in the hardware circuitry of the brain. So entertaining that ontology, witnessing and beholding and experiencing that recontextualization that is true, right? That is true. You really are, right? You are a part of the will. When you contemplate the Milky Way, you are a part of the Milky Way galaxy, realizing and experiencing itself as being a part of the Milky Way galaxy. That's a true statement. But that entire fleeting intellection, subjectivity, I still believe is operating physically in this arrangement of atoms inside your skull. And that, the way that that's patterned and organized ends at physical death. So there are no more, there's no more soliloquies about being one with the universe when the processing unit is gone for that experience. That's well, my issue with it. Well, and so my counter to that, which is a bit woo-woo, is right. I like the idea of a redu reducing yeah. valve. We do not understand consciousness. Yeah. There's the hard problem of consciousness is I the know. hard problem of consciousness. We don't, right. we can't understand no, what it is like to have the lights on. We don't I know. know what know. what of the wetware makes that the case. And what I believe, and I believe that I have been shown in the wallpaper of my own sort of psychedelic imaginings, is that. I am a re I am an aperture of the divine. My consciousness is an aperture of the divine. And when the hardware ends, the reducing valve is released. The aperture expands and I my consciousness expands far beyond what I could possibly comprehend as a human. As my, the system that I am that I am in cannot have full comprehension of itself. And so once the hardware ends, I don't think the consciousness was created by the hardware. I think the hardware reduced the consciousness into what I understand as an ego. Right. So so you're a television set with an antenna tuning into the the channel. But here's the thing: when I break the TV, you can't watch anything unless you have another transceiver. I'm not the TV. I am. I am the. I'm the transmission, and um, I believe my ego believes I am the TV, and the TV is this body. But the reality is that I am the transmission. And when the TV but, but, breaks, but, maybe the transmission is picked up in all sorts of other ways that I didn't understand because I only understood the transmission as the TV. Sure. Yeah, I. I that's very interesting. But there comes a point. I mean, we know from taking anesthetics or people in comatose or vegetative states that, that consciousness can get really weird. Like consciousness can take us into domains where you actually might prefer death than the way consciousness is. And so I'm not convinced that disembodied, unpatterned by the personality structures of the brain and of your temperament. I don't know if like, consciousness without the arrangement that makes me me is worthwhile hmm. that's that's what i speculate i i i'm too attached to the music that i love to the art that speaks to me to the films that resonate to the people i care about and i just reaching out for those reference points is um is 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 in a way how I remind myself that I exist. It's how I inhabit my own mind. But doesn't this and also bring you pain? 
the bittersweet longing um, it, for the it, fleeting it, moment? It certainly can, but I just, I just, yeah, like I just, I'm not, I just, yeah, I can't, I, I can't fully, yeah, I'm, ju- I'm just not willing to, to accept, you know, the, those terms that we have to like give it all up. Uh, there's a book that I recommend to you. It's out of print, but it's wonderful. It's written by a guy called Alan Harrington. It's called The Immortalist. I would really recommend it. He's how, got. How do I get it if it's out of print? Amazon okay. used. Yeah, there's... But there's like sections where he talks about. Um, he talks about psychedelics and blowing our own minds in order to experience immortality now. He talks about going to war, which is another experience of immortality now. Somehow heightened risk makes us feel immortal in some ways. And all of these things. But then he says, but in the end, it doesn't matter because everyone still dies. And that mm. the only real response to our situation is an engineering project to eternalize ourselves. Yeah, but so... And self-divinize. So that's and, and a risk way, to me. That's a risk to me. Because let's say that I'm right. And that 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 Godhood actually waits on the on the other end of death, and that and that if we were to find a way to immortalize ourselves, we'd actually be imprisoning ourselves in these in these unique and frankly neurotic egos that are are very painful to inhabit from time to time. Dude, but these these unique and neurotic egos, you know, are responsible for all the songs that have ever made you cry. Like I've never seen like the stars sing a song to me you know it's because you haven't taken acid because <laughs> i have seen the stars sing a song to me i will tell you <laughs> fair enough uh, yeah i think it was also flo bear he said um Something to the degree of human speech is but a cracked kettle on which we tap crude rhythms while we long to make music that will melt the stars. Yeah. Wow. And by the way, you are really giving me a run for all the things I'm going to have to put in the show notes. So you've, <laughs> you've referenced like a already? dozen awesome things that, oh, cool. you know, I feel like people listening, I imagine you're listening right now. Don't you want to read what all these things are that Jason's brought up? I will have them in the show notes. Great. So great. How long have we gone for? Well, I think we're I think we're getting ready to wrap up. It's okay. like an hour and 45 minutes. Oh, wow. Okay. I thought we were doing an hour. So this is good. Cool. Yeah. Well, you know, I it takes a little while to warm up. It in does these, take a little while to warm up. In these spaces. Usually and, in the beginning of an interview, my brain starts to think, oh my God, did I eat enough for breakfast? I don't know if I ate enough for breakfast. Well, and, and <laughs> I, I start, think, I literally, I'm like, oh my God, my fuel's feeling a little low. Yeah. I don't think are you, I ate are, Am breakfast. I going to hit the, the, the laudable flow state? The other thing I think is that we tend to be a little stiff in the intro, in the intro and so we tend to lean on the things that we're most comfortable with. Always. Um, and and break people open. Yeah, and to get into the, the real intimacy, yeah. um, I think takes a little little bit of time um but i think for the most part i've I, there was a number of things that i wanted to talk about and it flowed pretty nicely yeah, we got um, some good stuff there yeah is there anything because obviously we've had some incredible conversations out on the playa and is there anything in these last few moments that um that you wanted to talk about that you wanted to talk to me about that um that you feel deserves to make it into this podcast um 
we you mentioned earlier we can kind of wrap with this thought but you mentioned earlier about uh, attachment styles and i definitely have an anxious attachment style um however the the entity to which i am most attached that has never let me down is my art mm. and uh ernest becker in his book the denial of death says every creative impulse we have is a way of mitigating our paralyzing fear of death from the impulse to divinize the concept of religion and don't worry believe in god and you'll be saved at the end of time or deifying our lovers which is another way the romantic solution to the problem of death is to fall in love and make her a goddess uh, that's attachment make for sure her, make her a deity she's like the wind she's yeah that's salvation. Really, yeah. she an, is an avoidant deity she is the french girl in the movie the beach she is penelope cruz in vanilla sky she is sophia that will save me um but then no relationship can bear the burden of godhood so you're always going to be frustrated by the flaws of a human with all their contradictions um and so the last solution to the problem of death is the creative solution. So it's like, and that, that's a twofold solution. Number one is the engineering creative solution, which is like medicine and science and fucking biotechnology and re-engineering biology and radically extending human life and curing cancer and all these creative solutions to the problem of death, aging and suffering. Um, but then the other creative solution to the problem of death is our poetry. You know, and it's like that Robin William line from Robin William line from Dead Poet Society, where he says, you know, science, medicine, engineering, noble pursuits necessary to sustain life, but poetry, love, truth, this is what we stay alive for. And it is precisely because of my deep love to all those things that I'm committed to the art that I'm committed to doing. Like every time I do a video, I am, I am, I am expressing the most intense aliveness that I can muster. Um, and to live, what is it, Bukowski said something like, to live so well and so intensely that death will tremble to take us. And that's, you know, that's how, that's my operating system. And is that is that the long-term goal of your that's art, that death will tremble to take you? Somehow, yeah. Somehow there's this feeling that, yeah, that with my work, I, I sort of I shake the cosmos in my own way so that it lets me be. And something that I've seen in in reading interviews and preparing for this is what I really like about you is that it's also about sharing that. It's also about transmitting and inspiring. And yeah. there's there's something that's deeply empathetic about your yeah, work. And I think that I that's really, a really important I really, aspect. I really like to be understood. One of the the most nurturing and nourishing ways to dissipate anxiety of death, loneliness, disconnection, endings, is to feel held. And when you're understood, you feel held. You feel seen. I think what makes me a decent communicator is that I'm, I work really hard, and at this point it's all intuitive, but to make sure that, I'm seeing, that you're understanding me. If I feel you understand me, then I can go deeper and farther down the rabbit hole because I'm not alone. You're with me so we can trace our way back, you know? That's beautiful. We're going to end there. Amen. <laughs> Thanks so much Amen. for coming, Jason. <laughs> right? You're the first to have ever realized that. Thank you for joining us on Life is a Festival. If you enjoyed this episode, you can support it by sharing it with your friends and leaving a review on iTunes, letting us know what you thought. 
If you'd like to keep up with me, you can visit my website, aimonarmstrong.com. That's E-A-M-O-N armstrong.com or Aim and Armstrong on your favorite social platforms. Thanks for tuning in. Together, we can make life a festival for everyone. See you on the dance floor. We do a little, we do a little after thing. What is that? The, the little after thing. After the music goes, at the very end, we have one little thing where I say, Jason, how'd the podcast go? Oh, Eamon, the podcast was great. Yeah. Did you I, like it? I liked it very much. Um, I, as I said earlier, in the beginning of conversations, I get really neurotic, worried that I didn't eat enough for breakfast and that I'm going to run out of steam. But I feel like we warmed up into a really nice flow and I hope you're happy with it. Me too. I'm super happy with it. Great. I feel like uh, a good podcast for me is when I'm learning, yeah. when I can feel myself learning good. and when I'm like, oh, but but what about this? You know, you feel and I've been I've been wanting to talk to you about impermanence. Cool. Like for a long time. And yeah. I wanted to talk to you about psychedelics too. And mm-hmm. you were just a font of both your own and other people's wisdom. Mm-hmm. And um I'm doing the interview. So partially I'm learning, but I'm also checking and I'm 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 watching. Mm-hmm. But then I get the I, I get the lovely job of then listening to this privately and being like, Oh, nice, nice, nailed it. Awesome. Yeah. I'm super so, stoked. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.